No mai, hari mai. Welcome everyone to this session at uh, Word Christchurch, Family Ties with Carl Nixon and Chloe Lane. I'd like to acknowledge the mana whenua of Ototahi, ngai tuahuriri. I'd also like to um, acknowledge this fantastic space we're in. Uh, thank you, Tūranga. Um, thank you also to Penguin Random House and Victoria University Press, who are supporters at this session. My name is Kirsten McDougall, and I'm delighted to be here as the chair for this session, in which we'll discuss Chloe and Carl's wonderful novels and also the craft of novel writing. Chloe Lane and Carl Nixon tell very different stories in their respective novels, The Swimmers and The Tally Stick. But both of these novels find hearts in that most complicated of human units, the family. In Chloe Lane's The Swimmers, 26-year-old Erin arrives at her aunt's house for a long weekend to learn that her mother, who has motor neuron disease, has decided to end her life on Tuesday. Following a serious car crash in Carl Nixon's The Tally Stick, three children are rescued by a hunter and taken to live on a remote West Coast farm where they have no choice but to create a family out of their rescuers. Both Chloe and Carl's novels are compellingly told dramas that present serious ethical situations with a clear, non-judgmental eye. Long after reading these stories, you're left wondering what you would do in the situations their characters find themselves in. The Swimmers is Chloe Lane's first novel. She has an MFA from University of Florida and an MA from Victoria University of Wellington. Chloe was the founding editor of Hue and Cry Press. Carl Nixon is a novelist, short fiction writer and playwright and he's also adapted novels for the theatre. His work has been shortlisted for the Commonwealth Writers' Prize. He has twice won the Sunday Star Times Short Story Prize. And in 2018, he was the Catherine Mansfield Fellow to Monton, France, where he worked on the manuscript for The Tally Stick, his fourth novel, which will be published in the UK and US next year. Please welcome Chloe and Carl. Right, so we thought we'd um, begin the session with um, a reading from the first pages of the novels to set the scene for the session. And then after that, we're going to have a discussion about both of the novels before we head into um, a conversation about writing craft. So I'll make sure there's plenty of time for questions before the end of the session. So if you've got any questions about the books or about writing in general, um, you can ask them then. So what we're going to do is have the brief reading and um, we'll get Chloe to start. And before they do their reading, they're just going to give you a brief elevator pitch about their novels so you kind of know what they're about. Okay, thanks, so Kirsten. Over to you. So as Kirsten touched on, The Swimmers tells the story of Erin Moore, who's a 26-year-old woman. It's told through her point of view. Um, she's returning home to the family farm and... When she gets to the family farm, she learns that her mother, who is suffering through the late stages of motor neuron disease, wants to take her own life. Um, so on the surface, this is a book about a sister dying. Um, but what it's really about is this family, this family unit, their dynamics, and how over the course of the five days that the novel takes place, how these dynamics shift. Um, so I'm going to read... 
just the first couple of pages from the first chapter. And this section is called The Saturday Before. It's a painting show, I said. Geometric abstraction. Geometric abstraction, Auntie Wynne said. Shapes, I said. Squares and triangles, etc. I had no desire to discuss art with Auntie Wynne. This was the first time she had shown any interest in my interests. I had my mother to blame for these questions about the, my recent curatorial debut and while trapped inside a car. I can remember the difference between an isosceles triangle and the other one, said Auntie Wynne. It was typical of her to veer the conversation into a zone where she could be in control, in the know. The isosceles and the triangle were three sides the same. You mean the equilateral, I said, and there's the scaling. You've forgotten that one. I don't know about that, she said. That doesn't ring a bell. Then, before I could respond, as if it were the only play she could think of to again shift the subject of attention in her favour, Auntie Wynne tugged hard on the steering wheel and I was thrown sideways in my seat. Shivers, she said. She brought the car to an uneasy but deliberate stop on the grassy verge on the wrong side of the road. She hadn't lost control of the vehicle. She had seen something. Look at that, she said. I was holding a brown paper package of raw meat that Auntie Winnie collected from the butcher shop after collecting me from the bus stop. It was our red meat for the long weekend. She had insisted I nurse the parcel, which was the size of my head, all the way to the Moore family house. I was no vegetarian, but the car was filled with the stench of uncooked beef and lamb. I'd already spent two hours on the bus. Now I just wanted to reach our destination and see my mother, whom I hadn't seen in nearly a month. I wasn't interested in any kind of delay. I squinted through the dirty windscreen. Look at what? Thanks, Chloe. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to give us your elevator pitch and um, um, first right. pages? So my elevator pitch is that in 1978, the Chamberlain family uh, tour uh, English tourists in New Zealand and they go off the road down in, near Haast on the west coast in their car on a rainy night and the car just vanishes into the bush and completely disappears, goes over a bluff and just completely disappears. And the children are three, three, there are four children, one of the children dies. Uh, the, both the parents die and three children survive. And two days later, they're found by a pig hunter who, instead of doing what you might expect and taking them to, a, um, to safety to the nearest town, takes them back to the remote farm where he lives with a woman and uses them as indentured labour, um, as you do. <laughs> and um, <laughs> um, uh, the story has a couple of timelines in that in... 2000, that's in 1978. In 2010, the bones of one of the children are discovered and um, it's revealed that the boy, Morris, survived for four years after the crash. So the question is, what was he doing for, for four years? And the children's aunt tries to solve that question. So I'll read to you from the very first uh, chapter about the, the accident. The car containing the four sleeping children left the earth. From the top of the wooded bluff where the rain-slicked road had curved so treacherously, down to the swollen river at the base of the cliff was easily 60 feet. There was no moon that night, only low, leaden cloud clogging the sky. As if suspended, the car hung in the air for a fraction of a fraction of a moment. 
Very soon the children will begin to fall towards the tops of the trees, towards the headlong water rushing between the boulders into the future. The only person awake was the driver, the children's father, John Chamberlain. His long, narrow face was visible in the dashboard light. He was staring forward at the headlights as they shone east over the seemingly endless forest, fat diamond drops of rain slanting through the beams. His expression was, more than anything, even more than fearful, disbelieving. Both hands still grasped the wheel as if he remained in control. Perhaps he believed there might even then be a maneuver he could perform, a secret lever known only to a few he could search for, yank, something, anything he could do that might save his family. Behind him, one of the children groaned and shifted in their sleep. Julia, John's voice was a dry whisper. The children's mother was next to him, her chin tucked bird-like into her shoulder, head resting on a cardigan pressed against the door. Earlier, she had unbuckled his seatbelt. It had been uncomfortable. Now it coiled loosely across her shoulder and down into the shallow pool of her lap. She was dreaming about horses. Three brindled mares were wheeling in formation in a dry, barren field. White dust rose around them, swirling higher and higher. Faster and faster the horses ran, as if trying to escape the dust they were throwing into the air. In Julia's dream, the horses' hooves were impossibly loud. Thank you. <coughs> Thanks very much, Carl. Um, so one of the bits we didn't see in um, The Swimmers, Chloe, is that... Um, what Erin is looking at, mm, and that is yeah. a goat that's tangled up, <coughs> tangled up in a lead in a tree. And so Auntie Wynne said, "You've got to help me get this down." So, but both of the novels start with these quite dramatic events um, in their first chapters, and I wondered if you could say why you chose those particular scenes to start your novels. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sure. Um, so, yeah, sorry, I didn't get to the part where the thing that they're looking at is a goat who's got its horns caught in a puta colour. Um, and so that's the action of the scene. What happens is Erin and Auntie Wynne, they get out and they have to work together to help free this goat. But the, the big thing that happens in this scene is this is when Erin learns about what her mother wants to do, that Auntie Wynne and Erin's mother have come up with a plan for how Erin's mother's going to take her in life. And I think from the very beginning, I always knew that that's what needed to happen in the first chapter and that Erin needed to learn it from Auntie Wynne, who she has, you know, a really prickly relationship with. Um, they don't get along well. They're, I mean, they're estranged, really. They see each other once a year. Um, so I knew that that was a conversation that had to happen, but... It took me probably a year of writing to get that actual scene, to get the scene with the goat. And I think, you know, one of the things I learned, seeing as we're talking a lot about craft, mm -hmm. was um, a really valuable lesson I learned writing the book is giving your characters something to do, you know, giving them an activity that they can carry out that gives a way to activate the scene, which is a lot more interesting for the reader. Um, it's more fun to write as a writer as well, but it gives you you know, more ways for them to talk to each other using their bodies. Um, you know, instead of, say, having this 
serious conversations sitting side by side in a car, mm. you know, where they can't even see each other and they can't respond in any way. Mm. Um, and so there's that. But I also, another thing that I found really helpful in trying to get that first chapter right and figuring out how to write a novel and this was something I learned from one of my wonderful teachers who I worked with at the University of Florida, the novelist Jill Cement. And she was like, think about that first chapter as being the novel in miniature. Mm. You know, so that everything that happens in that space of that first chapter um, is what you're going to tease out over the book. And I think finally getting that chapter right showed me, you know, this is how these two women sort of move around each other. This is how Erin really feels about Auntie Wynne. It also is what taught me that this was going to be the key relationship in the novel. Like, this book is about these two women. It's less about Erin's mother and more about Erin's relationship to this woman she barely knows. Um, and then once I had that, it was almost like that became a blueprint for the rest of the novel. Mm. So, yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, that's, that setting up of tone. And, yeah. and also, for me, the goat really acted like a kind of metaphor or a key kind of image for this, for the novel, that you know, played out, yeah. Yeah. Vulnerability. Yeah, and that they're going to have to find a way to yeah. work together and communicate and make this, mm. this thing happen. Yeah. What about you, Carl? Um, because I write for theatre as well, I've known for a long time when you write a play that if you, when you start a scene, the, the saying is you start, uh, start the scene late and leave early. So basically you don't have any exposition or preamble at the start of the scene. And then as soon as the important thing happens, you bail out of that scene. So I, I often carry that through into writing novels as well. And so for this, uh, I had a slightly similar process in that um, when I was writing the first draft, I did have a kind of framing device, um, which was someone, someone who was in a cafe on the West Coast who was telling a story to someone else, uh, kind of a Forrest Gump setup, and and um, and that was fine, and I wrote quite a lot of it, and then he started telling the story, and the story that he started telling, and I hadn't pre-planned this, so I was just writing, it turned out to be the story of these children who were in a car crash. Um, so, and I thought, wow, okay, why do I need all this pre-thing, the story starts here. This is the motor for the entire novel. This drives the whole thing. It starts with a car crash. And as soon as I discovered that, then the writing took on a real energy because, mm. um, well, it, it's a crash. So, you know, that, that <laughs> Actually. literally has a lot of energy. Um, and, um, and so, and everything that happens from that first scene uh, is is a re is as a result of the first scene. It all flows from that, uh, and yeah, no, I I enjoyed writing that scene very much. Yeah, yeah it was very compelling for the reader because as soon as you get this very dramatic event, you're like, mm. I need to know what happens. Mm. You know, and, and I do like that in a novel. You know, yeah, same. You the kind of you, yeah. you want to find out what happens next. There's, there's there's not much exposition. Basically, it's just driven by yeah. what's just happened. Yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. Um, so, Chloe, your main character and the narrator of the novel, Erin, is a young woman who she's still finding her feet in the world. Um, she's had an affair with a married man that's ended badly. She's completed an art history degree, that, but she feels seems like she's quite ambivalent about what she's going to do with her life. 
Um, and her relationship with her mother and with Auntie Wynne is really complicated. Um, she's not as close to her mother, I think, as she might desire. Um, and I just wondered what made you choose her as a character to, to tell the story. Yeah, I think... I, th I would argue that she is quite close to her mother, but I think it's right. like a... And I think like a lot of family relationships, it's, it's a complicated relationship. Mm. Um, and it's been made more so by the fact that um, when Erin's mother found out that she was ill, it was really important to her that Erin not change her life in any way. You know, that Erin's life be as normal as possible, that she keep her study, that she keep her work, that she not move cities um, to help take care of her. And that was her mother's way of protecting Erin. Um, but I think now that they've reached this point, Erin feels a lot of guilt about that. Um, and so I think that is, you know, put a lot of tension on that relationship as well. And I think, you know, another thing as well is over the course of this novel, these five days, maybe for the first time, Erin, who occasionally cannot be very perceptive, it's like <laughs> she's just realised that her mother has other relationships outside of her relationship with her daughter. You know, and I think this is true about this relationship he ha she has with Auntie Wynne, her sister. You know, Erin um, and Aunt and her mother have always been on a team against Auntie Wynne. And to see her mother step across that line and see how close she is to Auntie Wynne and these sort of like special way that they can com communicate, that's surprising for her. But of course her mother has other relationships, you know, and of course her mother has like a complex internal life going on as well that Erin also doesn't know about or understand. And I think that's made so clear to her and upsetting for her because she knows that she's going to run out of time to get to know her mother in the way that she would like. So, yeah, they're close. And, and I think as well that she's just realising the limitations yeah, of, yeah. of their relationship. Um, in terms of choosing to write this character, uh, I've been thinking about that a lot. And I think as well in relationship, relation to the new novel I'm working on, which also has a first-person narrator who's a woman, but who's in her mid-30s. And I think when I was started writing The Swimmers, when I was in Florida, you know, I was in my early 30s, um, but I was, a lot of my friends, people who I was studying with were in their 20s. And so I think I was thinking a lot about my 20s um, and feeling a bit baffled by them and how... Um, you know, the ways that I'd, like, wasted a lot of that time and the really dumb things I'd done and the regrets I had. Mm. And so I think writing this character was a way for me to maybe tease out some of that and try and make sense of how I'd lived my life in that period. Though, you know, to be clear, Erin's character is very much fictional. Everything that happens in the book is fictional. I think it was actually just a really personal choice, a way to try and make some peace, maybe, mm. with who I was at that point and try to figure out how to be a better person, you know, how to move on from that version of myself. Well, yeah, certainly her, her kind of bafflement as a, as a young woman felt true to my own experience. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the, uh, the novel's called This Woman's, and um, we learn that Erin, Auntie Wynne, and her mum, have, they've all swum competitively at different kind of levels. And I wondered... Um, why you chose that as a strand, if that's something in your own life. Well, I think it is because you've written about swimming pools. Um, and how it sort of operates as a metaphor for their relationship in the book. 
Yeah, I think the swimming thing started out in a similar way to the writing the first chapter of the book with the extracting the goat, and that I was just looking for things to give the characters to do. And at the time, I was swimming a lot. I used to be a competitive swimmer, but when I was in Florida, I was swimming every day. It was something that made me really happy. And I was like, this is a thing I can give these characters that can also make them really happy and a thing they can have in common. And also a thing that they can go and do in the book together to give me scenes, more scenes to write. So I think on like a very practical writing level, mm. there was that. Mm. And then the thing I like about Soren and why I think it works is because it's a solitary pursuit. You know, it's not a team sport. And I think it speaks to their personalities, the personalities of all three women, actually, that they enjoy being in a pool with their head in the water and just swimming up and down, that they find that fulfilling and pleasurable. Um, I think, in a good way, they're quite independent women, and that comes through with that, but I think they can also be quite selfish and quite thoughtless, and I think that comes through maybe a little bit in that as well. Um, yeah, I felt like swimming, I mean, it's, it's one of those things that you do, you're in your, I mean, you have to share a lane, but you're in your own lane, and uh, when I was young, I did swimming, I used to practice all my French fur bending. Yeah. Um, yeah, but yeah. so you're very much in your own head, but you're still having to negotiate other people. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it felt like a really, I don't know, to me, a nice image for their relationship. I, I swim as well. Maybe it's a writer. Maybe. Oh. Well, I mean, writing a novel, I think, is yeah. a really similar pursuit, you know? We, you think about it while you're swimming. Yep, you can, and you <laughs> sit down every day, and you write, and you by yourself, and you're just in mm. your head. Um, but yeah. I think as well, you know, thinking about swimming as a competition... Yes. As well, and the fact that, yes, you're kind of a part of a team if you're in a club, but really, and I think Erin's starting to feel like that, you know, if you think of her family as her team. Yeah. But really, like in the pool, you know, you fail or succeed on your own, and yeah. I think she also feels that. Yes, yes. Yeah. things that happen in this story. Yeah. So you, when you wrote the manuscript, were you still living in this? Yeah, you were doing your, you were doing your, so it was part of your MFA. Yeah. So how did that influence that sort of American, being in that American environment, how did it influence the book? Can you, can you I mean, can you even unpick that? Yeah, it was, it was quite a strange experience, actually, because I think this is where this book is set. You know, it's like very rural, um, so it's around near where I grew up, and so I knew the landscape really well, and I think that's why I started writing the book in that location, because it, I was really new in Florida, and I didn't know how I felt about Florida yet, and writing a book set in New Zealand, it gave me something to hold on to that I could, felt really safe with. But as the years passed, and I was still working on the same book, um, it, it became really difficult, and I would forget the names of things. I would forget how things looked. Yeah. I would have to, like, Google search images all the time for yeah. trees, and, and then there's things that you can't Google search, like, how does it smell? Like, how does the wind feel in this kind of landscape? And mm. so that became quite tough, you know, especially mm. I wrote quite a bit of this. I was really lucky. Um, I got to use my teacher's house to write for a lot of the summer. And her writing room overlooked a lake. And there were alligators out there, like, everywhere in Florida. And so they would sometimes come up onto the lawn as well. And just, like, sitting there writing about rural oh. New Zealand while the alligators are up swimming their laps of the... Of the Having just Alexa. read um, The Animals in That Country, the Laura Jean McKay, the animals, people can start understanding how the animals talk. 
there's a crocodile scene in there. Oh. I don't want to go anywhere near those creatures. <laughs> no, alligators are not like crocodiles, though. They're actually very placid. Oh, okay. Yeah, they're yeah. quite sweet, really, oh. once you get used to I don't, them. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, Carl, um, the tally stick has got this amazingly wonderful, slow-burning tension throughout. Um, and being the wimpy reader I am, I admit to turning to the end of the novel to because I get too I get too um, stressed about what's going to happen. <laughs> I have to know. <laughs> uh, oh no! I know. No, so I do this for TV series as well. But um, but the, the greater conflict comes from the the not sort of knowing what's going to happen, but how the two different approaches between those two main characters, Kate and Morris, um, their different approaches to their situation and how they're going to survive, how they're going to adapt to these new lives. And I wondered if you could just talk about Kate and Morris a bit and their different approaches in the novel. Um, yeah. So Catherine, Kate, yeah. um, is, um, I think, 12 uh, when the crash happens and Morris is her slightly older brother. So um, I wanted to set up a compare and contrast type situation. So when, when they're being used as indentured labour, uh, Catherine adapts um, and she, she quite likes the routine of living on the farm, the fact that, that the environment is very beautiful. Um, I think one of the redeeming features of the, of the novel that take, you know, stops it being completely bleak is that um, it's, it's quite a beautiful environment, yeah. Um, and I tried to describe that and give the feeling of the the beauty of the West Coast forest. Um, and uh, whereas Morris, on the other hand, ha- hates it, and even when he likes aspects of it, he pretends to hate it, and he f- he has this festering anger towards what's happened to him, and uh, and towards the people looking after them. So even acts of kindness towards him he just rejects uh, whereas Catherine actively changes um, as she goes through so for me Catherine's the central character of this mm. of the novel because she she's the one who changes the most over the, the the course of the novel whereas Morris is desperate to stay the same and in in a way desperate to be like his father um, and and to keep this kind of Englishness mm. um, it's been pointed out by more intelligent people than me, that the um, that some people think the no, the novel kind of is about colonialism to, to a certain extent. Uh, I, I was vaguely aware of that when I was writing it, but um, it, it, so it's it was it's it mirrors the way that people who come from came from England to New Zealand, uh, especially in the early colonial days, were shaped by the land and had to adapt to the harshness of the land and the differences from from England, um, which I think is quite an interesting take on it. Yeah, I read that same piece. I thought it was really great, actually. Yeah. yeah. So the, you've got, in, in the novel, you've got the children's aunt, Suzanne, who um, is back in London and, and trying to figure out what's happened to the family. Um, so she adds this other layer, sort of outside of the, this contained world, yeah. to, the, to the drama. Um, and I just wondered if you could talk about that part Suzanne plays in the novel. And did, was she there the whole time as you, you were writing, or did you sort of write a part of it and think, I've got to add another um, layer in here? Or? No, um, she wasn't there originally. I, I started writing it just from the accident and then what happens and what happens and what happens. And it became a little bit like a kind of Famous Five adventure, disturbingly. <laughs> um, 
or because it was it was it was all it's not a first person narration but it was all from the point of view of what the children are experiencing was the real focus it's very tightly on the children's experience um and it just felt a bit samesy yeah to me and so i thought i needed something else and there'd been a little reference in the first chapter i think to aunt suzanne who'd given them a gift that was in the car when when they crashed so um and i thought oh, okay aunt suzanne we'll see if i can write a, a bit about aunt suzanne and as soon as i started writing it i knew it was in the future mm. um and it was it turned out to be 2010 um and i thought oh, okay so i just followed that thread and then I found that oh I quite like this and it created a jigsaw structure for the novel short mm-hmm. chapters with um not alternating but just within these short chapters different chronologies um be- because it goes if I think if I can call it, 78 and then 2010 and then it jumps back to after she went back to the west coast several times over the years after the crash up to about 83 or 84 and it jumps mm. back to that as well so you get these kind of at least three different time structures and and it does create that kind of jigsaw pattern which I'd never written anything like that before so, and I I quite liked it and it becomes something that really shapes her life too. That this, you know, this yep. She she changes incident. as a result as well. She's yeah. probably the, the the secondary protagonist really because she mm. goes through quite a profound change because she has to learn how to uh, fit into the New Zealand environment mm. because she starts coming back for long periods of time, months at a time, to search for the kids on the west coast. So um, and she becomes quite obsessed by it, and her marriage ends up on the rocks. But as a result, because her husband's not too keen about this. Um, so, uh, and then she becomes kind of tougher and more rugged as well. Mm, mm, yeah. I really enjoyed that contrast mm. but in between the different time periods as well. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I want to touch on that, um, that um, review by Erin Harrington, which was in the spin-off, which was really, really engage, engaging, um, engaged and warm review. And she said that the novel... Um, challenges our expectations of genre and she notes the sort of elements of New Zealand gothic and also you know it's a suspense narrative but it's it's many things beside that um and I just wondered if how genre informed how you constructed the novel or or if you even think of that as your writing um I I, all, all my novels have been slightly genre um, influenced. Like my first one, Rocking Horse Road, was definitely um, a murder mystery and got marketed as a as a crime novel in Germany. Um, and my second one was kind of a thriller as well. Um, my third one was a historical romance, and this one, wow, is, yeah, yeah, and th- this one I think is is influenced by thriller mm. aspects. But but I also like to be writing about something significant and yeah. important and character focused. Yeah. So I. I have tried and can't actually write something that's entirely plot-driven. It mm. doesn't really resonate with me. So it's, I can do it as an exercise, but I can't, I, I'm not interested enough to write a yeah. whole novel that way. Yeah, well, you, like you said, you feel like you're writing Famous Five if you just, yeah. this happened, this happened. Yeah, yeah, this happens and then that yeah. happens. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and I think you can, as a reader, you'd probably be able to feel that, that yeah. the writer, I was not engaged with the material that much. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so for me... Um, it does have aspects of a thriller and a kind of thriller structure, but is also also literary. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, it's useful, right? Mm. I think as a yeah. as a writer to be able to pick and choose from. Mm. Yeah. So, um, a question for both of you um, around family, and that is that you've got two very different types of family um, in in the novels, and it, they really explore the ways in which um, we have obligations and are bound to other people, that, the people that we live with. I mean, I wondered if you could talk about how the concept of family operates in your novels. You know, and did you, did you set out to write about family? Chloe. Um, do you want to start? Oh, I <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yes, yeah, I, I, I realised... I didn't set out, but I realised later that family was an important theme to the, to the extent where I had a little definition of what a family was along with what a telescope was at yeah. the front of the book. Yeah. Um, because, yes, I was very interested in exploring how um, that these children had, put them, had found themselves in a situation where they essentially had a new family, a surrogate mm. family, mm. Um, and how they adapted to, to that situation. Um, I don't know that I reach any conclusions, though. I do, it's kind of just an experiment in asking the question, what is yeah. a family? And then I think it's up to the reader to, to say whether the, this was actually a family. Um, I think for Catherine, it certainly feels like a family. Certainly the relationship with, with the woman, Martha, who's looking after them, feels like a mother-daughter relationship yeah. after a while. Um, although the reader, I think, is suspect about that because the reader has insights that the child doesn't. So if it is a family relationship, it's a manipulative mm. family relationship, mm. um, which families can many, many are. Certainly <laughs> be. Yeah. So, um, and the father is just using them, using Morris certainly as a, as a labourer. Yeah. So, um, and then he abandons them. So, yeah, a lot like a family. Really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Chloe? You've yeah, talked a little bit about this. A little bit, yeah. Um, I think I was really interested in the roles that we play in the families, um, especially immediate family units, and how, you know, sometimes I think we can get really lazy with the way that we interact with each other and that we don't, you know, I'm talking about, you know, my relationship maybe with my parents here as well, you know, sometimes you don't, like, stop and really look at the person in front of you and... Mm who they might be now, how they might have changed. Um, you know, we just sort of slide back into these roles that we've been playing our whole lives. Um, and I think with this book, I was just really interested to see how whether the events that take place over these five days, whether that could shake this up with this family mm. at all. Um, and, yeah, how, you know, they, they start the book and they sort of dance around each other and they have the way that they talk to each other and think about each other and how, how the book might crack that open. Um, one of my favourite scenes, actually, in the novel takes place in the swimming pool changing room. It's between Erin and Auntie Wynne. Mm. And at this point, Erin's still very combative and she's still sort of playing this game with Auntie Wynne. But in this moment, Auntie Wynne reveals something to her. She tells her something about herself which... It's quite embarrassing and also sad. And Erin, rather than wanting to make fun of it, which she would usually use it as sort of like a weapon against her, it, um, it means a lot to her that Auntie Wynne makes herself vulnerable in that moment. And it makes her want to be vulnerable as well. And so this is a turning point in their relationship. And I think that was something I, yeah, really wanted to explore in the mm. book. Like, yeah. 
how we can sort of make those moments shift. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, so we'll segue into some craft questions. And I'm going to ask a sort of... I actually, I actually put this out on Twitter. I was like, what, what do people want to know? Like, because I write as well, and often I'm so immersed in process, I don't... I forget what I know and what I don't know. Um, and so I'm going to start with a big question, which actually came from Ashley Young, who's a, an essayist and a poet. And she said, how do you write a novel? How? And I... <laughs> And I actually thought, that's a good question. I, I don't know. Yeah. Do, you, do you have any clues? Um, well, I think you've got to have an idea for a start that is actually an idea for a novel. That, yep. That's quite important. But an idea for a novel. For a novel, yeah. yeah. But, but not, not, I'm not being facetious. That, like, I, you have very, I've got a book, a little handwritten book of ideas that I've come up with, but a lot of them aren't novel ideas. They're probably short story ideas, mm. or some of them are play ideas. And you've got to be able to identify the difference, I think, between those type of ideas. So how do you know the difference between a play and a novel? Um, a, pl- uh, a play is, has a lot more action in it. Uh, for, for me, a play has a lot more action in it. You can, you can visualise people doing things, a lot of things, and it's generally in a short period of time. Mm. Um, whereas a novel has to have a central character who feels really strong and, has, and it has to have also, for me, uh, um, s- some type of big motor, as I said before, that, that gets the action going and sustains it over a long period mm. of time. Mm. Yeah. That's my definition. Mm. Yeah. 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 What about you? Do you have any... Yeah, I mean, I'm going to answer in more of a craft way because yeah, yeah. I feel like, for me, I always... Yeah, I like hearing about how it comes together. Um, and I think, yeah, agree, like, I needed the thing that was going to sustain me across that sort of ocean. Um, but in terms of actually writing it, first of all, writing every day, I think, was a really big lesson I learned, just, like, sitting down and working on the book. But also, um, I had this really good analogy that one of my teachers taught me, which is, so you start the novel, and this also, I think, has a bit to do with rewriting, start the novel and you go down to the shore and writing the length of the novel is like trying to get from this shore to a shore that you can't see in the distance across an ocean. So you sit down, you've got your little raft, you know, because that's what you have at the beginning. And you push it out into the water and immediately starts taking on water. (laughs) So you go back, you build something a bit better. Maybe you get out five metres this time before you spring a little leak. (laughs) Maybe you can plug that leak and get a bit further out, but then no, two, three more come up. You've got to go back to shore and so on and so forth until you have yourself, like, a really good boat, you know, with, like, a really good motor. And I think that's the thing, the big thing that's going to sustain the story. Um, but also a lot of other stuff, like some good characters that you want to write about, things for the characters to do, you know, that are going to keep you going as a writer and also keep your readers going eventually. Um, and I found that so useful, thinking about writing like that, because then it never felt like anything was wasted time, you know, and I never felt freaked out about the fact that I had to discard what I'd done and start again. Yeah, well, so that, well, that was a question I had, was how do you, because it, surely both of you have moments in writing where you go, this is complete shit, what am I doing? I shouldn't even be, how do you, you know, when that, when that boat is taking on water, what do you do to cheer yourself up? Well, how do you? I, I, 
I, I, that's exactly right for me. I, you go back to the start again. So I, I write my starts so many times. Mm. And then so almost every time in the early process, I always go back to that first bit. That, that, that scene with the car going off the cliff, I don't know how many hours I spent on that, but a lot. And then I would find the next little bit that happened and then add it to the, the boat. And then, and then I would maybe then make a mistake and think, oh, that doesn't quite fit with the rest of what I built. So then I'd add a little bit more. It's just kind of incremental. But then it gets to a point, I think, for, for me, um, after the halfway point at some point where... I'll just start jumping around and maybe write mm. the ending because I can see it now mm-hmm. because I've got mm-hmm. the big the big bulk of it back mm. here. Mm. And I'll write the ending and then I just fill in the gaps. Mm. And also by that point, I always find I have the tone, I have mm. the characters. Mm. The, the writing becomes a bit more fluid. Mm. It can take a while, though, eh, to get to that point. Oh, yeah, a long time. Yeah. As you say, if, you don't, if you're not doing it every day... It, it, yeah. it, it just, if, I, if I'm not writing, I have weekends off, but if I'm not writing during the week pretty solidly, you, you lose connection mm. with the material and you can't, you can't really, um, it takes me hours to get back into how it should feel mm. you know, if, if I'm away for any length of time. Mm. And I think as well when you're writing every day, you become a lot less precious about what you're putting on the page. Mm. You know, like it doesn't, None of it has to be perfect. Mm. Like, that's for way, way later when you get to work, work with someone like Ashley Young. You know, like, that's when it starts to get really perfect. But in that early stage, you just, you know, get it down. Maybe you have a really good day, you write 1,500 words. Maybe you have a really good day and you lose a chapter, you know, and that's part of it as well. You know, I think, you know, you look at a book and, like, as a reader, this is what you see, but... It's like an iceberg, you know, like all of the stuff below the surface mm. is what we do, you know, over those years, which help prop this up, you know, so it's not in the story, all of those hours and hours of writing, all the chapters that don't make it in, but it's like, I, need I, to write I, them. I, to. I never write chapters that don't make it in. Oh, see, I do. I write a lot. And yeah. I, I think it's how I, you know, figure out things about the characters or... You know, maybe it's like a chapter that I really like and something funny happens, but it doesn't actually drive the plot forward or it doesn't do something new to the character. So it's just, it's, it's I'm, cool. I'm I like pretty it. rigorous when I start writing something like that. I, I think to myself, uh, no, this is a dead end. And I, I tend to cut it off quite quickly okay. without kind of finishing it. You You're know, a lot more experienced than I am. <laughs> You're just speeding maybe, up that process a lot more. Maybe a bit more uptight. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, look, I've got a ton more craft questions here, but I realise um, I should probably open it up to the audience. Um, so there's a roving mic, and if you, if you want to raise your hand, the mic can come to you. Um, yep, there's someone over here. Yeah, just over this side of the... Um, So I am 30,000 words into a family-based novel. I was wondering if you guys have felt the vulnerability of worrying about your own family or friends reading into your characters and saying, 
I see my, your family in this. <laughs> my, my brother-in-law yelled at me at a play opening once. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, if that's any help. <laughs> um, no, I, I don't worry. I don't worry too much. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it... <laughs> He's only my brother-in-law. He's not my brother. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Chloe? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it can be awkward. Um, I mean, none of the characters in this book are based on any family members, but they're definitely family traits. And I think maybe those family members are aware of them in a way that's maybe not super flattering, but also, <laughs> like, tough, you know? Yeah. Okay, you're both in the sort of publish and be damned camp here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I never write too much about actual family. And actually, the brother-in-law anecdote, um, I... I I went straight to my mother-in-law afterwards and said, look, I'm really sorry. I didn't quite realise this was quite so close. And she went, what are you talking about? <laughs> oh, no, I didn't notice that at all. So, you know, it, yeah. you can't please everyone all the time. Some little thing you've stolen yeah. from, from a family incident, um, one person might recognise, but then the character will, will have ten other things about them that are completely different mm -hmm. as well. So, but, and that, that's probably one of the nice things about fiction, Harder with memoir because you can get people wanting to sue you. <laughs> um, are, there, are there any other questions? Yep. Um, so there's a couple down the front here. So I think the woman in the red was first. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, I would like to know if the two authors get other people's opinions on their drafts or whether you do your own thing entirely. Yeah. Um, I was really lucky that I. The very first draft of this, I was because I was still in school, I was still doing my MFA, that um, I had a room full of readers, but my teacher, Jill Cement, at the time, who became my mentor, she, even once I'd finished the program, read my first drafts and gave me very critical feedback, which was incredible. And I think, for me, that was just the biggest gift. You know, someone who's just straight up, it's not personal, it's like, this is everything that's not working, now you need to go back to the beginning and throw those 80 pages out. And... I think that was incredible. And then I had, yeah, a couple of readers and later points, my uh, New York agent as well, who I did like a really big, huge amount, number of edits after her reading, which was also really amazing. And then I was lucky enough that I got to work with Ashley Young at VUP, who's an incredible editor. Um, you know, so at that point, I guess it's less of a draft, but you're still... It's amazing how a fresh set of eyes can just tighten the screws and how much better it sounds. <laughs> you know, the writing, when you have a fresh reader and, like, an amazing editor. Eh? Yeah, I have a couple of um, friends who are objective enough to just go, yes, I quite like that, no, I don't like that. Um, and my wife normally reads my things. Um, she's always very critical. Uh, <laughs> and in actual fact, she really annoyed me at a late, at a late um, stage. <laughs> by, by, she said to me, she said, this is reading like young adult fiction. And that wasn't meant as a slight to young adult fiction, uh, which is often amazing. Uh, but she, she was... She was, and I went, oh, no, no, and, and reacted quite strongly because I didn't want it to read to read as though it was aimed at young adults. Um, but I gave it a bit of time, put it in a drawer for a couple of months, and she was exactly right. You know, that, that was her first impression, and that was exactly right, and that's what I need to hear at that point um, because focusing on young adults 
sometimes the the rhythms and style of young adult fiction had kind of come through into what I was doing. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, to Carl, um, I read your book. Thank you. In a day. Oh. <laughs> it was brilliant. I loved it. I was constantly thinking, is there any truth in this? What did, did an accident happen that, that prompted you to write the book? And I was also thinking, there's a television series in this. <laughs> um, <laughs> nice, thank you. Um, the, uh, the, the wasn't, there was no one incident, but it's really interesting. Um, after I'd written it, I actually remembered that um, a, a guy I played, uh, played football with years and years ago and I hadn't really thought about this during the writing process, but he did die. I didn't know him that well, but I did play on the same team as him. He did die quite young. He was about 20 in a car accident where he was driving back from Nelson to Christchurch and he vanished. And they didn't find the car for about three days. Um, he just just vanished. And um, that consciously hadn't stayed with me, but... I'd been asked that question before, and, and I thought, well, yes, I did know someone who just vanished into the bush, you know, just mm. vanished. So this is just the kind of uh, hyperbolic version of, of what happened to someone I did actually know, yeah. Mm. Mm. Someone over Yes, this is to Carl as well, and I've read your book, and I want to know um, when you started the book and the car is well. When I started reading the book, I could smell the west coast. I could see it. I could see the whole thing happening. Now, do you have a place in mind? And did you go back there to look at it before you wrote it? Or did you just write that out of your head? Um, I, I can't quite remember the, the order this happened in, but I think I started writing it and then I did do a bit of a research trip where I drove um, down through Haast and around to the West Coast. And we were we, around to um, uh, Queenstown, Wanaka. Um, and we were, um, yeah, we were, so we were there and we stayed at Fox, I think, and we were there for a couple of days and I just got that kind of feel of the place. Um, it's just so wet. Yeah. But, you know, we, I remember one day the, my family and I went for this walk and, you know, the bush is just dripping and it wasn't the middle of winter. It was just, you know, it's just, it's just dripping. And the whole place just, just exists because of the water that, that's there the whole time. Um, so, yeah, I did a little research trip and, and then had that in, in mind as, as I was writing it. Mm. Cool. Right, well, look, um, unfortunately, I've got so many questions I didn't get to ask you, but we're, we're out of time. Um, but I'd just really like to... Um, highly recommend both of these books um, and I would encourage you to go and purchase them out. There's a bookshop out here and I know that um, Chloe and Carl will be there to sign and if you had a, you know, a little question you wanted to ask, I'm sure they'd be happy to 
um, answer them. And the next session on in this space is um, a conversation with Vincent O'Sullivan. Um, and there's also a session on at the piano, Merchant, Minor, Mandarin at 3pm at the same time. So thank you so much for um, coming to this session. And if we could just thank um, these two wonderful writers. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.